Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Paul Ricard, filling in for Peter Switzer. On tonight's show, we kick off with Rudy Philippek van Dyke, the editor of FN Arena. He makes some really interesting observations about small and mid-cap companies. That's actually part of the market that's been struggling a little bit uh, in relative terms, but in, in, in look back at reporting season, some of those companies did really well. And he names four that he's following at the moment, NextDC, Hub24, Steadfast, and a very defensive play in the Lottery Corporation. Raymond Chan from Morgan's builds on that theme, and this is our last look at reporting season with some data, again, that shows that the uh, ASX, uh, the stocks outside the top 50, reported on a relative sense better than the stocks inside the top 50. But one company that really stood out for him, a company that's come off a long way, is, uh, is Domino's Pizzas. It used to be about $160 stock, it's now trading at $65. Morgan's have got to buy it and he tells us why. And finally, in a change of pace, uh, back at the property market, we've got Anna Porter from Suburbanite. Some really interesting insights about some of the challenges if you're thinking about building or renovating or buying a place to renovate, uh, particularly not so around, around tradespeople, but also the, the cost burdens you're going to face in terms of getting people and fixed price contracts and some great tips uh, from Anna about uh, how you can manage that and how much you need to budget. Uh, if you're thinking about um, about to build or renovate or do something in the property market. That's Anna Porter from Suburbanite. She rounds up tonight's show. First up, Rudy Philippek van Dyke from FN Arena. One of the standout features in the market has been the underperformance of some of the mid-cap and small, small cap stocks. In fact, the bid caps have been doing relatively better. Maybe that's because the fund managers are seeing outflows and, uh, uh, and have had to liquidate some of the stocks. But they certainly haven't been putting a lot of money uh, into the small cap part of the market. That means there's some value in that part of the market. And joining me now to discuss his thoughts, in particular share his ideas about some stocks that he thinks look like value at the moment, is the editor and founder of FN Arena, Rudy Philippek van Dyke. Rudy, welcome to the program. Well, Paul, if I'm not welcome, I'm, I'm switching it off. I'm going away now. Well, it's a, it's a standard line, Rudy, but I know you're welcome and a great favourite with our viewers. Look, what did you think of my statement there about potential value in mid-caps and small-caps? I mean, it, it does seem like a part of the market that, uh, that has really been underperforming and underwhelmed in the last few months at least. Oh yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree. I, I couldn't agree more, even if I tried. Um, I, th I think what we, what we are seeing is, is a general uh, caution that has crept in, in particular with um, institutional investors, with large investors, and and that by default means that all the action, so to, so to speak, uh, is taking place in the large cap stocks. Um, I mean, there's always some money flow in in the more speculative micro cap stocks. Uh, but I think the, the mid-cap stocks, they've been sort of left by the side uh, because there's, there's less volume and, and, and fund managers um, are, are a little bit hesitant in taking on too much risk. We still have uh, quite some uh, large question marks that, that lay ahead of us. Uh, one of them is, um, are we going to have a, a global recession? If so, um, how is Australia going to be impacted? Uh, the other question mark, of course, is with, with everyone uh, now convinced 
that we will see more tightening still, even though at a slower pace, but we still, we still see more tightening from the RBA locally as well. And then everyone's obviously, uh, the question mark there is uh, how much of that yeah. will impact on housing prices, on building activity, and then uh, on, on the global, on, on, the, on the broader economy after that. And, and history shows you that um, uh, small cap companies are, are more vulnerable to slowing economies and to changing dynamics. And I think that sort of feeds in to a, um, an, uh, a reflex to take less risk uh, on board. So it's a bit of a flight to safety. Let, let's go to some, uh, I won't say they're small caps, they're more sort of small to mid cap size, but some companies that look fairly defensive, but stocks that you like at the moment. Um, mm. The first one is uh, Steadfast, which is, I think from memory is the biggest insurance broking agency or insurance broker in Australia. Talk to me about uh, Steadfast, Rudy. Yeah, I, I, um, Steadfast, yes, it is the largest broker we have on the, on the stock exchange in Australia, but that still doesn't mean that much. It's still a relatively uh, small cap stock and that is, um, there, there's your risk. Um, a lot of people see it as a uh, as a roll up story, which means they they make regular acquisitions, which is true. Mm -hmm. But um, the lessons I've drawn from from international experiences is that uh, there is a lot more resilience to be had if if those companies are well managed, and and I believe that um, Steadfast is well managed in Australia. Um, the idea behind uh, an insurance broker is that um, they all else being equal, should have a relatively stead steadily going uh, performance uh, going forward because recession or no recession, housing slowdown or no housing slowdown, people will still be on the lookout for, for insurances and, and, and they should still demand, command their, uh, their, their market share. So that's basically the, the reasoning behind it. The only contra uh, argument I can I can I can give here is is that they are in comparison to to peers globally in Australia the sector is is quite small and quite uh, quite small sized and, and their clients and, and, are, but, their clients are typically small to medium sized businesses aren't they they're not they're not consumers they're actually providing a insurance broking service to businesses that are purchasing all types of insurance for business reasons right. Yes, and it's also a, a variety of uh, of, uh, of insurances as well. It's not just one type of insurance. Mm. And in terms of, of multiples and, and yields and other sort of key metrics, what do you, what do you like there? What are, what do the numbers there look like? It's not it's not um, at face value. It's not screamingly cheap, but it's uh, it's it's trading well below uh, uh, broker price targets. It's uh, I for memory. It's on a PE of uh, just above 20, something along those lines. Uh, it pays a reasonable dividend and, and, and equally important, uh, the dividend increases uh, just about every year at a steady pace. Um, and so on that basis, you could, you could say that it's not, it's, not, it's not very highly valued. It gives you a steady dividend and the growth prospects, all else being equal, as I said, should carry a lot less risk than for your standard small cap company in the stock exchange. Okay, let's go to another defensive stock. That's the, the Lottery Corporation. That's a recent uh, spin-off from Tapcorp, and that's the old uh, Tats business and, and Kino and all those sort of things. So um, very defensive. Apparently, the uh, doesn't matter what the economy's like. We spend as much on uh, gambling; doesn't get impacted too much. But tell me about the Lottery Corporation. 
Yeah, the, I mean, I recently made uh, made an, uh, an an overview of um, all the stocks that uh, that the stockbrokers seem to like post the August reporting season, and this one definitely keeps on coming back. It's it's being quoted by just about every stockbroker, and his neighbor and his neighbor's dog. Um, all you just said is correct. This uh, from from investors who uh, who cover this sector, this is regarded as the gem in the Tepcorp Holdings group until recently. Mm-hmm. It has now been spun off, and as a result, nobody likes Tepcorp anymore. <laughs> um, and everyone now likes the lottery company. There are not many companies of this particular type and of this size that are available to investors. It's one of the reasons to like it. But more, as you said, it should all else be equal. It should be, a, if it's well managed, it should be a, a very resilient um, company. However, it would appear that uh, for the year ahead, uh, there's not much growth um, anticipated. But medium term, longer term, just about everyone is convinced this is this is this is your recession proof, very steady going, high quality company. Um, if I uh, have a, if I have a look at where brokers put the valuation for this stock, um, I think it's on average we, we get we get something like 15, 20% more. Um, so it's definitely not overvalued. Um, although at, at face value, of, of course, it, it, it's not trading on single PE or something, but investors should understand that um, a company like that is supposedly as resilient as trustworthy and as reliable as this one. They, they, they never trade on extremely cheap PEs unless there's something fundamentally wrong with a company like that. Yeah. Okay, let's go to a couple more that are certainly, I, would, I guess, would characterise themselves as, as a little more growth oriented. At least they're, they're, they're trying to grow strongly. And the, although the business of uh, the next DC in, is in, which is data centres, is sort of pretty sort of uh, yeah, a bit like infrastructure-like. But uh, let's talk about next DC. I totally agree with you. Again, um, the ASX has made this a member of its uh, of its all tech uh, uh, index in Australia. It's fine, but it's actually an infrastructure stock. I'm, I'm with you. Um, it's a bit out of favour at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised mm. uh, because eighty um, percent of their contracts um, allow them to pass on the energy costs to their customers. Yeah. Uh, you could argue, okay, there's still the other twenty percent, but um, does that deserve the share price to be clobbered as it has been in, in recent weeks? Um, again, um, they have a little bit of a limit on the growth in the immediate outlook because there would, seems to be some bottlenecks in the supply of hardware. Um, but again, um, look beyond that. Um, I, I remain of the view that uh, the data centers, um, that is still very much uh, uh, future focused uh, and, and all has been equal. Again, we, we're talking here about, but well, disregarded a, a high quality company, well managed and carried by megatrends. The 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 only counter argument you can you can throw in here is that if we ever get to a point where there's too much um, capacity. Uh, and then the prices will will, will be uh, commoditized for for those centers, but to be honest, I I don't see that on, on the horizon anytime soon, and and, and, and so it, this it business a, mm-hmm. it, it, it's hard to get the best sites, and um, you know it's a bit like and, and it takes a long time to build these data centers, right? They're not actually yes, a, yes. 
you know, I, I agree, location is very important in terms of, you know, and, you can't speed people, up the speed of light, right? <laughs> yes, and people sometimes say to me, but it doesn't have a mode. Yeah. And I go, well, I mean, building a center like that, apart from finding the locations and all of that, building a center like that, it costs close to $1 billion. And that's just one, one of those centers. So if that's not a mode, then I don't understand the concept of a mode. And, um, and of course, they, I mean, again, um, we also have regulations such as that data, um, critical data in Australia has to remain in Australia. Yep. Thus, even if people would have the ambition of, of, of sharing our data with the US or with Singapore, it's, it's legally impossible. Yeah. Um, so there, there's lots of ways of, of, of approaching this business. Um, some people don't like it. Uh, it's not profitable officially. Um, but then again, that's also not understanding the business model where you first have to raise the capital, build the centers, and then it's literally build it and then they come. Yeah. Let's just go to another company that's grown very strongly in the uh in the platform space, and that's Hub24. It's been one of uh, platforms, until recently, where pretty much a lot of investors were uh, looking at some of these companies. It's sort of gone a bit quiet in that space the last six months or so, but talk to me about uh, Hub24. Again, uh, the, the introduction is absolutely accurate. The, I, I suspect that the reason why that whole sector has gone out of favor is because literally we're in a bear market. I mean, the market is, is, is down for the year. Mm. And it's it's um, we'll just have to see whether it will have a positive end to, to uh, in, into the last months. But regardless, um, it's no longer a raging bull market, and that always has, at the very least, a, um, a psychological impact on companies. Yep. That let's face it, there are lev there's leverage to to the upside in markets. Now, having having said so, um, the, the, that sector in Australia is fundamentally changing. And you have the likes of NetWealth and 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 a few smaller players uh, like uh, Premium, and and Hub essentially is is the the number one operator, the most attractive, the probably the best, also the best performing in that sector. Has been uh, my favorite in that sector for quite a while, and I, I I simply think investors here have to be a little bit patient. Um, sentiment will return at some stage because. Companies like Hub, they will continue to take to take market share away from the larger players. Um, at how fast that will go and how long that will go on, that's that's obviously I mean, a matter of discussion. And, but and I what's think it look in, like in, in, in terms of valuation? Um, it's a lot less valued than it was last year. So if you literally look at the share price, it has come down quite a lot. But it seems to find a, 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 a base around that $20, in the early $20 mark. It's again, because of the growth prospects it has, uh, the margin improvement that is, that is ongoing, uh, it never trades on, a, on an extremely low PE. That's just not the type of business. And it's, it's, let's face it, it's not in trouble. Right? Yeah. It's just temporarily a little bit out of sentiment. Um, it doesn't, because, of, because it's higher valued, it doesn't, pay out a generous uh, dividend like some of the other stocks might do. But again, uh, it's regarded as being uh, well managed. It's uh, it's definitely a, a business that is carried by ongoing positive momentum operationally. It's just that the share market in itself at this point in time is um, is not cooperating. The other element maybe worth pointing out as well is that the, the industry locally of advisors is actually shrinking and shrinking quite noticeably. 
and and people in the past have uh, posed a question to me how that would impact on companies like NetWealth, Premium, uh, Hub24. It turns out that that's actually working in, in to their favor. Um, the money that that is concentrating around less uh, advisors yeah. uh, is still flowing uh, in majority to uh, to to the let's call it the the smaller players in the fringe. That was Rudy Philippek van Dyke, the editor and founder of FN Arena, sharing some insights on four smaller companies in Steadfast Insurance, the Lottery Corporation, Hub24, and Next DC. For the last look at reporting season and one stock that he thinks looks pretty cheap, I'm joined by Raymond Chan, the head of the Asian desk from Morgan's. Raymond, welcome to the program. Thanks before for we, the invitation. Yeah, before we come to the reporting season, I just want to get your take on uh, US inflation data on Tuesday night, Wednesday our time, uh, plus you know what that means you think for both the US market and our market in the sort of the short to medium term. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with the FOMC meeting coming up uh, later on this month, there's certainly a lot of talk about what the Federal Reserve is going to do in terms of rate hike. And one of the hint out of the rate hike is, you know, how good or how bad, you know, uh, uh, is the, the CPI figures. CPI is a measure of inflation. So obviously with high inflation, the central bank will have no, no choice but to but to hide the interest rate. But more important this week is how does the actual figures as compared with the market expectation? So clearly before the announcement of the CPI figures, the market was thinking, you know, we should have a month on month on month CPI fall by 0.1%. Mm-hmm. But, but we didn't get that. We have a, uh, we have a plus 0.1%. So plus 0.1% for one month doesn't appear to be high, but if we look at the year on year number, it's actually up 8.3% year on year. So it's actually quite high of the inflation um, uh, in in US. And as com- in, in comparison, Australia actually have a lower inflation as compared to US. However, what happened with the Federal Reserve is uh, the markets is now thinking there's about a bit of a 30% chance there will be a 1% rate hike in the, in the September meeting. Whereas, you know, they almost, almost, almost guarantee there will be at least 70, 70, 75 basis point. And, and uh, where does, and where uh, does, rate hike here. And, and, where, and, and where does Morgan stand on that? What do you guys think? Yeah, we think, uh, well, we, we are, before the CPI figures, we are thinking about, you know, between 50 and 70. Uh, now, look, looks like 70 will be more likely. And what happened then is the critical point will be, the Reserve Bank of Australia tend to follow what the Fed is doing. Mm-hmm. If that be the case, we will likely to see the rate high going all the way to 4% in terms of the cash rate. So that's significantly higher than where we are today. Um, another interesting thing, if we look at the cash the cash rate, uh, what I talk about here is the Reserve Bank cash rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, just a few weeks ago, I noticed there's a significant skew toward a rate cut. If I look at the future market for next year, now the chances of that rate cut, according to the future market, has 
somewhat uh, subside. So uh, looks like the high interest rate will be here longer for long, uh, uh, higher for higher higher for longer. Okay, all right. Let, let's go back to reporting season because you've got a lot of analysis about uh, how the last reporting season stacks up uh, historically, uh, and you've got a bit of a chart uh, that you. I think it's worth just taking viewers through. So let's start with, uh, put the chart on screen. And um, if you'd like to explain some of the key points that come out of that chart. Absolutely. I mean, this chart look a little bit busy, but you know, what I do want to point out is the number of bid and miss as compared with other reporting season. So basically if we look at August 22, which is the reporting season, reporting season we just have. Mm -hmm. One of the key themes we will focus is the number of company that miss. While we have two big column, one is the top 50 company, another is outside of the top 50 company. We have something similar. We have actually more companies, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, either either big or small, they are, we have more company miss the market expectation than the previous two to three reporting season. So while the, the reporting season seems to be okay, but in fact, the trend has started to deteriorate. But what come with it is because of the market adjustment, mm -hmm. uh, mostly not because of the reporting season, mostly because of the tax sell-off. So we have a lower, we have a lower PE. So as compared with the previous three to four reporting season where the ASX 200 are on a over 20 times PE, now we have around 17 times PE on our market. So certainly the market looks more attractive than before. Yeah, and the, and the other take I took out of it was that the uh, stocks outside the top 50 did better in relative terms. And I guess that's a little bit surprising because the market this year, the top 20 stocks at least have been the best performing part of the market and the smaller caps have actually lagged. So um, in some ways, the profit reporting suggests that the smaller companies are doing better than the big companies. This is a very good observation. And uh, my, my take on that is because the small cap sort of peaked around September last year, since then, you know, the small cap in terms of the stock price mm -hmm. already correct quite significant. Uh, as a result of that, the analysts become more bearish and they all run to downgrade their numbers yeah. as such. In terms of small cap going into the reporting season, they have a lower expectation. That probably explains why we have more small cap company meet the expectation. Yeah, I think that's a good point about the analysts. They all seem to be, uh, the ranges on the big companies tend to be pretty narrow, but on the small companies, there can be some big ranges. And when uh, things are under trouble, they tend to lag a lot and they, uh, the downgrades can be pretty big. So. Uh, I guess it doesn't take as much to surprise on the upside for a small company. Do you think that's a that's a fair observation? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do agree, like hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Now let's. Uh, I think that's really interesting because I think there's value in the small caps at the moment. Uh, let's move on to uh, this company. It's not really small cap, but it is sort of around about the top fifty-ish. Maybe it's just outside. It used to be in the top 50, I think, and that's Domino's Pizzas. Of course, we all know, uh, everyone locally knows what it needs, but they're a global company, right? They're, they're making pizzas, or they're a, they would argue they're almost a technology business uh, in many cases, uh, and it's a global business. Talk to me about Domino's Pizzas, and again, we've got a chart that you want to take us through on this one. 
Absolutely. Domino Pizza, um, when they leased on the A6, um, they, they, they were just a predominantly Australian-based Domino franchise. Mm -hmm. Now they are the biggest Domino franchise outside of U.S. Uh, and in fact, they globally, they, they now have 3,000 franchise uh, stores and uh, from which, you know, they actually have the most franchise in Europe than Asia. So both of these have more, more stores than Australia. And this is where, you know, they grow the business uh, in the in the latest result, they continue to grow. They will open more, uh, they will open store now in Singapore, Malaysia, uh, and, and, and even Cambodia. Uh, in the past, Domino demonstrate they can, you know, make use of their profit and continue mm -hmm. to grow uh, into different region. And uh, same same source sale is uh, what we look at for Domino. They usually have, you know, three to six percent same uh, same store sale yeah. um, uh, on on a quarter to quarter basis. So that looks very strong. As such, you know, they have you know uh, a, a demand a very high PE. Uh, because it's a true grow, growth company. But okay, well, let, 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 let's what happened now? Yeah, uh, let's go to your PE chart, and maybe you can just explain this to the viewers, because uh, it's a pretty surprising chart, this one. So let's just go through this chart, first of all. <laughs> they do carry a very big PE, uh, not your typical, you know, bank stock or even, you know, lower resources stocks. But of course, when we look at resources stock, we don't really look at the PE because that seems to be skewed toward the commodity outlook. Um, now, if we look at the PE, we look at the middle line, the the the, the solid red line. The average PE for Domino Pizza, in fact, is thirty five times, mm -hmm. and you, we see a spike of PE up up to almost 60, 60 times. That was during COVID. So yep. what happened in COVID? People got nowhere to go, so they will have to order pizza, especially Japan. Um, you know, through the Olympic, there's a lot of people order order pizza online, and those who who, who have experience with Domino Pizza will, will quite enjoy the app, yeah. the technology, which you know Paul you mentioned a moment ago. They are they have a cutting edge technology uh, that deploy globally, um, and that that you know reap the reward. But then you know uh, we can see the chart. You know the stock. Uh, uh, on the reopening of part of the economy, mm -hmm. it start to go down, and of course, you no, know, at sixty uh, times PE is probably not sustainable. But now, look at the chart; it now fall to actually fall to below twenty eight times now. Um, you know, uh, trading you know uh, around the sixty around the sixty five dollars mark from, of course, the peak. You know, over one hundred sixty dollars. So well, on PE, and I should explain if I, I remiss me earlier, of course, that's price to earnings ratio uh, and they're the, the near term earnings. But coming down from 60, a model of over 60 times to under 30, that's still compared to a lot of other stocks pretty high. And I appreciate the chart says that, uh, you because know, we saw the bounce there a few years back at the same sort of level. Um, what Are there any... <laughs> Putting the PE aside, are there any sort of other fundamental reasons why that you like Domino's? Yeah, I think uh, we, we think, you know, the Domino result um, probably, you know, the August result probably as bad as, as, as it gets. Mm -hmm. uh, we think, you know, the, there's a number of thing, moving parts in the result. We, you know, we look at the, the, the Japan. The Japan uh, result actually... 
slightly uh, better than our expectation, but the problem is with, with Europe. Uh, every now talk about you know potential recession in yeah. Europe um, and how does it going to impact uh, the business. In fact, the volume is not really that bad, but in terms of price rise, everyone's talk about, talk about inflation. The European customer are reluctant to pay a higher price for their pizza. That is the reason why the profitability out of the European business are going backward. So, so Domino's uh, and margins remember being squeezed, they have right? Most yeah. So, so, so Domino's exactly. margins they are unable squeezed. to pass higher. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, but however, whatever that we are seeing now likely to improve. The the first of all is you know uh, we we have you know the sales number going backward but looks like the sales number will improve um you know uh, in this financial year as as suggested by the by, by the management the other thing we look at is they added a more growth in asia they opened more store uh and more importantly uh they the, the feedback i got is with the supply chain or that inflation it start to subside a little bit so a lot of people they have issue with the logistic they have issue with you know the higher cost of their product uh that seems according to a lot of meeting uh, I have post reporting season that mm -hmm. seems to um, um, uh, fade, fading away a bit. So uh, that give me the confidence that uh, we, we, we may be close to the end of the downgrade cycle on Domino and uh, we may be seeing better results uh, in, uh, in, you know, in coming years. Well, Raymond, look, we'll, we'll put you down for Domino's. You're obviously a hungry guy out there <laughs> uh, at uh... At around about $65, hopefully that's the end of the downgrade cycle. I know Don Meiji will be pleased to hear that uh, in particular. That was uh, Raymond Chan, the uh, head of the Asian desk at Morgan's. One of the big increases this year has been in building costs. It's been one of the big drivers upon inflation. So it certainly brings into focus the question of whether you're building new or buying an existing home uh, for investors. So to discuss that and other issues about when thinking about uh, building a new home, I'm joined by Anna Porter. She's the principal of Suburbanite, a property investment and uh, an advisory group. Anna, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Look, we know building costs have gone through the roof. So what are some of the biggest uh, challenges that investors are facing when they think about uh, or building a new home at the moment? Yes, so whether it be an investor or a mum and dad looking at, you know, upgrading to their, their dream home, it's mm -hmm. a very tricky sector at the minute. So there's a lot of building companies that we're hearing very publicly in the media are going bankrupt and, and going into liquidation. Uh, a lot of them have projects midway through, so that can be quite devastating. So anyone thinking about building, I really urge you to um, review the budget and put a fairly substantial contingency in there because the cost of materials are going up labor is hard to get, um, materials are hard to get. So timeframes are blowing out by you know, months and months and months in many cases, and also the costs are blowing out. So even though you might have what you believe is a fixed price contract, if the builder can't complete the project for that price, they'll either go into liquidation or they'll come back to you to renegotiate the price. So you need to be prepared that a fixed price contract might not really be what a fixed price contract used to be anymore. Now, typically, you know, most of particularly like project homes have all been on a fixed price contract. Uh, does that mean that whole model is perhaps, you know, uh, is sort of maybe a thing of the past and it will have to be a, a way that uh, investors will, and, and, and potential owners will have to think about uh, 
you're providing a bit more latitude to the builder or is that something once you open that perhaps that just gives the uh, builders a chance to uh, really take an extra dollar out of the contract dollar out of them out of the building yeah look that's a really tricky one because we have been working on fixed price contracts for for a very very long time i've been a, a property valuer for nearly 20 years mm -hmm. and they've been a, been around since you know before i was a valuer um there are cost plus contracts so builders can right. sign up to where they build it for the cost plus usually a margin of about 10 percent uh, but the challenge with the cost plus contracts is one it means you don't really know your budget right. but also when you're dealing with banks and lenders and financiers if you go to them and say you know i'm going to build this million dollar house and it's a fixed price contract they send it to the valuer the valuer looks at what you know your land is worth and what you're going to build and what it'll be worth on completion and the bank will lend you that money instead of tranches as you go so you can finance it off a fixed price contract banks aren't usually very comfortable with cost plus contracts and it can be very tricky to get the finance on them so that's a thing that would really have to start to shift for the marketplace to be able to comfortably adopt a model where fixed price contracts become a thing of the past but i think from a building perspective if we're sending builders across australia broke they can't mm. work something's got to give so how do you see that sort of playing out then? I mean, uh, as you say, does that mean perhaps that, uh, you know, people looking to build have to be super careful with the builder they choose and really put a bit more sort of due diligence around, you know, the, the builder's financial situation and strength and uh, I guess track record? Absolutely. It's really important when picking a builder to do due diligence and get legal advice on the contract. I see people sign building contracts time and time again for hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not even a million dollars or more, without even getting legal advice. So you certainly need legal advice. You certainly need to look at the builder's history. But even still, a good builder these days is really up against the challenges mm. of you know raw material and cost increases. And that is something that they're juggling. So I would say it really comes down to the project budget. So don't go in thinking, you can build it cheap don't go in thinking you can build it quickly either go in and look at if your builder couldn't complete because the cost blew out and it fell into a position where he just couldn't get that project done have you got enough money left to complete it yourself so that's where you'll look at doing progress payment schedules and get professionals on your team so get your valuers involved get your financier involved get a quantity surveyor involved mm -hmm. to check and double check these numbers before you embark on a major project whether it be a new build or a significant renovation. And you know, in the market right now, because of these challenges, properties that are renovated or newer builds are actually attracting more premium pricing because anyone buying is thinking, oh wow, is this gonna just be a nightmare or a headache for me? And the lead times are really blowing out as well. So quantity surveyors play a key role. They can help you sort of double check that the actual quote is, you know, something maybe that the builder can deliver on. I mean, what, what else can you do in terms of that pre-contract phase uh, in order to help ensure the success of the home and also success that the builder is actually going to be able to complete on time and, and, for, and, for, the, and for the amount that the contract says? Yeah, so working really close with your architect is really key as well. Making sure the architect and builder are working together because sometimes what the architect will draw and you'll get m multiple variations and versions of, of that, um, you know, those plans. By the time it ends up in the builder's hands, it actually can be sometimes quite different to what they quoted on. Mm. So definitely keeping your architect and builder really close together in that process is critical and the quantity surveyor should be double checking a lot of that. But the big one is actually getting your progress payment schedule correct we see a lot of the time there'll be a schedule where you pay percentages at certain stages of the build so effectively what you don't want to happen is the build is laid a slab 
but been paid for 80% of the project. And then they've got all the money. And if they're not doing well, they're pushing potentially that money into other projects to float them. And they've taken your money to float their business. And then you're in trouble if it does go under, you don't have enough to complete. So you're avoiding that scenario with your payment schedule, but the payment schedule needs to be correct. You know, most people would look at a progress payment schedule and not know what percentages to pay at what stages, but also you've got to inspect. So this mm. is where your quantity stay or value will actually put their boots on your site, look at if the builder says the frame's up, make sure the frame's up. It's not just delivered to site and lying around there and then going to be taken away somewhere else. So it's about having the right advice in those early stages because once you've signed that schedule, you're bound to it, even if it's not really correct. So it's, it's getting that advice early on. And what about if you sort of think your project's going off the rails a little bit? Are there any sort of, um, you know, tell, telltale signs to watch out for that might alert you to the fact that the builder's you know, potentially struggling to, to deliver at that price? Yeah, so a couple of things is if they're coming back for a lot of variations um, in that contract that maybe uh, you've got to check if they're justified, if there are a true variations um, and what was agreed upon. Also, if your trades are getting paid or not. So have the conversation with the trades the builders engaging. And if they're not getting paid, well, that's a bit of a red flag as yeah. well. You want to make sure that your plumbers and your, your carpenters are actually getting paid in a, in a relatively timely fashion. And a lot of um, projects will be set up where the owner actually gets um, copies of remittance to show that's being done throughout that project if it's a significant amount of money changing hands in that process because you don't want your tradies coming back and saying well we didn't get paid for anything and then they're going to have a dispute with you and the builder might have disappeared out the middle of that so certainly being on site and having those conversations is a big one the other thing you've also got to look for is what's excluded from your build or your contract mm -hmm. so you know you've got to think about even before you go into that process um, often building contracts when we read them exclude a lot of the floor coverings, window dressings, like, you know, like these sort of shutters yeah. that I have behind me here are very expensive um, and can be excluded. Um, window, uh, not window, sorry, um, light fittings, fencing, paving, landscaping, all of that adds up and can be fifty dollars or $100,000 or more on top of your build. So make sure you know what your exclusions are and make sure you're dealing with that early on as well and have the budget for it. Okay. Let's talk more uh, generally about the market, sort of that, uh, because it is, we all know it, uh, getting things built at the moment is really hard and COVID of course hasn't played a good role, but the whole equation of sort of build versus buy existing versus renovate, uh, has that really changed and is the, the market dynamics changing around that? Yeah, so look, TV shows like The Block get everyone very excited about doing mm -hmm. a major project and renovating and adding value. But things have changed a lot. You know, this this time in the market, it's actually very challenging. And people know that now. They're seeing it. They're hearing it from their friends. And they know that the lead, even the lead times with council, we put in a DA um, for one of our properties, a Sydney-based property for a pool. And we've been in council for about 18 months well, for a pool. Like, yeah, it's just pool. insane. Yeah, and yeah. You, we're getting letters back saying they can't even pick the file up for six months to look at it. So that in itself is a, is a real headache for people. So when you're looking at being a buyer or a seller in the market, um, anything that's already renovated, already DA approved, already finished as a product is mm -hmm. getting those premium prices. And anything that needs work is getting knocked around more than what it would have been in the past. That excitement about being a renovator and adding value to the property has really started to leave the marketplace. So when you're selling, you've got to think about getting it to a point where a buyer knows they don't have a big um, building or renovation problem on their hands or be willing to take the price that justifies that or, or, or you know is is in line with that so if you are buying to potentially renovate you've got to factor in uh, potentially a lot more cost than uh, you may have done say 12 months ago is that right 
Yeah, and the time frame. So if you're buying as an investor as well and you can't put tenants in until your renovation's done, you could have gone from what might have once upon a time been, you know, three months in council or even just prepping, even if you don't need to go through council, even just prepping to get your trades ready and buy your materials and things like that. That could have taken six to eight to 12 weeks. That can now be six to eight to 12 months just to get to the point where you've actually got the project really moving along and then you can get tenants in the property. So it's lost revenue the whole way through. Or if you're living in it, it's a, you know, I've just lived through a renovation. It's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, very dusty, very <laughs> frustrating. Or you might be having to move into other accommodation if you're doing roofs and structural things, which is a cost base as well. And it's not just for weeks now. It is for months and months that that can happen. You know, I heard a story just the other day about a lady that's renovating the plumber who's doing the bathroom or the builder, sorry, plumber or builder that's doing the bathroom, um, started demolished the bathrooms and then realized they couldn't get the tiles in in time and they'd ordered them and they're on back order now for months so they've now got a house with no bathrooms which you just can't live in like that so you know there's some real challenges out there right now any tips in terms of how you uh you get trades people and you get them to deliver and commit to time frames and even get that quote in the first place yeah look it is really tricky so it's about making sure you're scheduling them well in advance and actually getting trades that work together well so you know don't book your plumber that example there don't book your plumber next week but not have your tiles already delivered to site and ordering them these days is not enough it's you've got to have your pc items on site and you've got to be flexible you can't get the tiles that you want you might have to look at different tiles if you're already starting your project or have a timeline to meet so getting getting that timeline where you're getting quotes well in advance But instead of just asking how much is it going to cost, ask when can they start the project and when do they anticipate they can finish the project so that you can align all of those trades together because it is getting really tricky. Well, Anna, look, thanks for joining us on Switzer. I think that's some really uh, sage advice about the the renovation perils and also the challenges in building. So, uh, look, thanks for joining us. I think that that was some terrific insights. My pleasure. That was Anna Porter from Suburbanite. Look, some great insights about uh, you know, the challenges of renovation, but also if you're thinking about building, some things to be really careful of. That's it for tonight. You can read more about our insights at switzerreport.com.au. Peter will be back on Monday. I'm Paul Ricard. Thanks for joining me.